Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're of the generous sort, you can be like Ben, Janet, Robin, Garrett, John, and Jerry, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or a one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and even face masks on our Teespring store if you feel so inclined. Be sure to check it out. Our guest today is Dr. Tillman Benfi. Dr. Benfi is currently a professor of biology and acting department head at the University of New Brunswick Fredericton campus. He teaches courses in animal physiology, environmental biology, and aquaculture, having completed his BSc in marine biology at McGill University, MSc in biology at Memorial, and PhD at the University of British Columbia. His current research involves the development of effective methods to produce sterile, single-sex populations of fish for aquaculture. In addition to his role at UNB, Dr. Benfi also sits on the Editorial Advisory Board for Aquaculture and has served on the Board of Directors of the National Biotechnology Advisory Committee for Industry Canada. Additionally, Dr. Benfi has lent his expertise to numerous advisory committees for the Atlantic Salmon Federation, the New Brunswick Department of Fisheries and Aquaculture, and the New Brunswick Broodstock Development Program, as well as having served two terms as the President of the Aquaculture Association of Canada. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ben Fye. We're really fortunate to have you as a guest, and I appreciate that you could take the time to join me today and chat a bit about your work in aquaculture. Yeah, thank you. I'm looking forward to the chat. So before we get into discussing your work with live samples, I wanted to ask about your position as the Director of Animal Care at UNB. Could you tell us a bit about your responsibilities as Director and the steps that researchers must take to ensure that they're treating their subjects both ethically as well as humanely? Sure. I actually, uh, I'm no longer director of animal care. That's a fairly recent uh, development. So, um, but I did do that for 15 years. And uh, after 15 years and five uh, assessments from the Canadian Council on Animal Care, I thought it was time to sort of turn that over to someone else. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's something I enjoy doing. That's why I did it for 15 years. It's an important role, I think, uh, at the university to ensure that we're following good standards for the use of animals for teaching and research. So, uh, you know, recognizing that there's a valid reason for using animals in our academic programs, but making sure that we follow clear criteria for animal welfare. I think there's quite a few species in the fish wing at UNB. I remember zebrafish and brook trout and a few other species, but there's quite a lot of researchers doing work with live samples. Yeah, so uh, those uh, zebrafish and brook trout are the main species we work with. We maintain breeding populations of both. We've been, um, so for instance, brook trout, a native species here where, uh, where I work in New Brunswick. We haven't actually brought in fish from outside for um, probably 15 or 20 years. We, we breed our own fish in-house every year, so we have a captive breeding program. And similar for zebrafish, you know, they're obviously not a native species here. They're a warm water species, but very popular species for biomedical research. So we maintain a lot of different uh, lines of fish here for research purposes. And in the past, we've worked with cold water fish here on campus, like rainbow trout and Atlantic salmon and uh, short nose sturgeon. Don't have any of those currently. And also warm water fish like cichlids and guppies as well. Those more for teaching purposes and frogs. So moving on to your work specifically, could you explain how you produce sterile single-sex aquaculture fish, as well as the benefits and sort of risk mitigation that results from this practice? Yeah, so this is something I've been doing for 30 years. So, you know, you, you may have to cut me off if I, <laughs> I go on too long. Um, single-sex and sterile, it's, it's sort of, it's not necessarily the same thing. Uh, it's sort of two parallel uh, research and application lines that often overlap. So um, st- sterility is important mainly f- from an aquaculture perspective, not, not so much for fish farmers, but for uh, preventing the breeding of any fish that might escape from fish farms. A uh, big concern here in New Brunswick, for instance, with Atlantic salmon, where we have critically endangered populations of Atlantic salmon in the wild, especially in the upper Bay of Fundy. Uh, very few numbers, very low numbers of wild salmon, but in the same general uh, environment Bay of Fundy, we have large numbers of captive farmed Atlantic salmon in cages. And they're genetically different through domestication from wild salmon. So really, we want to keep these fish apart. We, we do not want uh, domesticated farm salmon entering our rivers and breeding on their own or interbreeding with wild salmon. So obviously, we don't want fish to escape from farms. But in the event that they do escape, if they're sterile, at least their uh, impacts are short-term, you know, over the life of that fish, not long-term, they can't breed. 
going right back to my days as a graduate student, I've, I've had an ongoing research program on specifically using triploidy as a tool for making sterile populations of fish. It's uh, relatively easy to do. Uh, the, the equipment required is, is really simple. Um, in terms of how it works, really, we're just, if, if you think back to your um, high school biology class and meiosis, you know, we're, we're interfering with meiosis, the process by which um, we get from diploid animals, two sets of chromosomes from the mother and father, down to haploid cells, egg cells or sperm cells that then recombine to give a diploid uh, embryo. So we interfere with that process to make a triploid. They have three sets of chromosomes rather than two. Um, you know, it sounds a bit complicated, but in terms of the techniques involved, really simple. We, we basically just subject the eggs to high pressure shortly after fertilization. Gives us uh, triploid embryos. These animals grow normally, but they are sterile. So they, they look like normal fish, except that they're uh, juvenile for their entire lives. So sterile. So that's sort of the, the sterility approach. And, and that's not the only way to make sterile animals or sterile fish, but it's the only one that's currently used in commercial aquaculture. So other methods for various reasons are not, you know, they, they work in the lab, but they're not suitable for aquaculture. The other sort of parallel path I've had research-wise is making single-sex populations of fish. And that's often linked with triploidy. You know, we, we like making uh, all-female populations of triploid fish. But all-female populations or single-sex populations alone have a lot of value in aquaculture. For instance, if you think of why would we want to make an all-female population? Well, if you think of species like sturgeon, for instance, the big money in sturgeon farming is for caviar. So if you can only produce a limited number of adult fish, if they're all female, then it's worth a lot more to you. Um, a lot of species we've worked with, females also grow faster or larger than males. Uh, and Atlantic halibut is a good example. So we've also worked on making all-female halibut populations. And they grow faster than males uh, as juveniles, and they also grow larger than males. Uh, we've also, this goes back some time, but we've also tried similar research with eels. And eels, again, um, females don't necessarily grow faster, but they grow larger. So male, our, our native species, the American eel, males only grow to about 30 centimeters, about a, about a foot. Uh, anytime you see a big eel that's more than 30 centimeters, which really is more of a marketable fish, uh, those are always females. Sort of a two birds with one stone approach. You're protecting wild populations with sterility and stuff, but also enhancing sort of the production value, I guess. Yeah, And, and often they overlap mm. uh, as well. So, so sometimes we just want to make single sex populations, but have them normal fertile diploids. Sometimes we want to make just straight triploid populations. But combining them, uh, for instance, with our work with Atlantic salmon to make all female triploid populations works well because triploid males, although they technically they are sterile, they can't produce viable offspring, they still put a lot of energy into uh, reproductive physiology. So they, they don't really have the benefits that a fish farmer might expect of sterility, uh, whereas triploid females do. So that's an example where we've combined those two approaches to make all female triploid populations. Multiple papers that you've published have focused on maturity control and investigating health indices and metrics in triploid fish as opposed to diploid fish. As a result of heat shocks and hydrostatic pressure, kind of like we just talked about, I've seen comparisons of gonadal development, fork length, condition factor, and even hematology. And I'm wondering if in your experience, the benefits of triploidy outweigh the developmental risks when dealing with aquaculture fishes, and if this varies by species. We kind of just touched on that for Atlantic salmon, but. Yeah, uh, and that's really um, been the heart of a lot of my research over the last 10 or 20 years in, in my lab with my graduate students is, um, you know, we, we've known for a long time that it's it's easy to produce triploid fish. So it's, it's very routine, for instance, in salmon or trout to do this. But we also know that, and we, and we also know that they're sterile, but we also know that if the rearing conditions aren't optimal, triploids tend not to perform as well as diploids, nor, normal diploid fish. So for instance, if temperatures are a bit above optimum, you know, not lethally high, but a bit above optimum, triploids don't perform as well as diploids. And same if oxygen levels are low, and those are sort of linked to each other when temperature goes up, uh, dissolved oxygen levels go down. Right. So our experience and, and in the commercial salmon farming industry, the experience has been that if you do everything right, triploids do well. If you're a little bit off with rearing conditions or feed quality, 
or maybe exposure to um, a pathogen that's not, you know, um, super virulent, but but is a stressor to the animals. It's always triploids that we see underperforming. So what we're focusing a lot on is trying to understand uh, what is it about triploids that causes us and knowing that are there ways we can improve their performance under commercial aquaculture conditions. And, and we see, you know, in, in the lab here at the university, it's easy for us to maintain optimum conditions. And uh, it's different in the commercial aquaculture industry, especially when you have fish in net pens in the ocean, as we do for Atlantic salmon, they're always exposed to whatever the natural conditions are. So we really, we have no control over that. And that's a big concern now, you know, independent of triploids, it's just what we're seeing with climate change and rising seawater temperatures. Uh, rising seawater temperatures linked to lower dissolved oxygen levels. So that's a concern for any farmer who has fish in the open ocean. But it's a special concern in cases where we're trying to raise triploid fish. I'm also interested in integrated multi-trophic aquaculture as opposed to, I guess, quote-unquote traditional aquaculture. Can you explain the differences between approaches for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, just to point out, this is not my own field of research. I, I don't do IMTA research myself, but it's a very active field of research, including colleagues here at the University of New Brunswick. Yeah, the idea there is that, uh, so if, if traditionally, whether it's on land or in water, we focus on farming a species. It might be beef cattle, it might be chickens, it might be Atlantic salmon. A species will occupy a specific trophic level. Atlantic salmon, like most fish, are carnivores, so they're at a fairly high trophic level. So the, the term integrated multi-trophic aquaculture, multi-trophic implies that you are rearing uh, organisms at more than one trophic level. So including Atlantic salmon in this case, but could be other species at lower trophic levels. And then integrated, meaning you're you're somehow tying this all together. You're, so you're rearing multiple species in one system. And, and the approach, so thinking again, Atlantic salmon, the approach here is to take advantage of a lot of waste products that are produced by the Atlantic salmon to grow other things. So Atlantic salmon, you know, living animals are always going to excrete metabolites in the environment could be soluble things, you know, they're excreting um, nitrogen and phosphorus into the environment, could be solid waste, they're producing feces, any living animal will do that, you and I are doing that, right? So we have sewage treatment plants to try to deal with that issue. Uh, Sewage treatment plants don't work in the open ocean when you have a net pen system. Uh, Historically, we've relied on dilution to take care of that. So uh, whether they're dissolved or or suspended um, waste products from the animal, We've generally um, allowed nature to try to manage that. So the idea with integrated multi-trophic aquaculture is to take those products, which essentially can be seen as nutrients for other organisms, and then grow other organisms. And the the approach that's been tried around here, for instance, is a a three-species approach, where Atlantic salmon is at the top, the high trophic level animal, producing soluble wastes like nitrogen and phosphorus and um, uh, suspended waste, uh, particulates, high organic load like uh, feces, and finding organisms that can use those nutrients. So going down a trophic level, uh, mussels have been tried, for instance, as filter feeders. So uh, we, we have an active mussel farming industry in Atlantic Canada, but typically those farmers farm just mussels. So the idea now would be to put mussel farms adjacent to or integrated into the salmon farms so that the mussels can take advantage of suspended particles that are released by salmon. So, so uh, break down bits of feces, for instance, for uneaten food, very high energy content, uh, high uh, carbon content, food basically for the mussels. So let's let mussels grow on that. And then moving further down uh, in terms of trophic levels with things like um, dissolved nitrogen and phosphorus, those essentially can be seen as fertilizers for plants. So in this case, something like kelp. Uh, algae basically uh, seaweed so now integrate that in so have sort of a um, kelp farming system integrated with a mussel farming system integrated with a salmon farming system all at one site so so salmon historically would be the product but now we have three products uh, salmon mussels and kelp so that helps uh, deal with waste produced by the salmon but not only is it dealing with the waste, it's putting it into the growth of something that is marketable because we can sell mussels and uh, kelp as food. I've been reading a little bit into this and I've seen a lot of arguments that sort of state that IMTA is holistically better um, or more 
environmentally friendly or on the whole, um, I guess just more optimal than traditional aquaculture. But I know that something that we've talked about in the past a lot is the sort of trade-off notion, especially with like land-based recirculation systems. Some people say like those could be more environmentally friendly or there's protection from contamination of wild species. But when we take into consideration the energy needed to move all of this huge volume of water, we yeah. use that sort of notion of trade-off. So I'm wondering if you think that the trade-off concept applies also to IMT versus traditional aquaculture, or if we can really make a generalization that states one is better than the other. Yeah, yeah and certainly, so you, you raise another interesting uh, topic we can discuss as sort of land-based systems, which, which we should talk about as well. Mm. Uh, but uh, in terms of the IMTA approach, uh, so it's, it's um, conceptually, it sounds great. I think from an environmental standpoint, just in terms of recovering uh, waste products produced by salmon, it sounds like a, an obvious thing we should do. Uh, and yet, at least here in Canada, it's really never gotten beyond the sort of um, uh, pilot scale trial approach. Uh, IMTA is done elsewhere in the world with different species, different environments. But here in Atlantic Canada, there's really no commercial production. So we do using that route. Clearly, we have a, a very large salmon farming industry. We also have a large mussel farming industry. We have a um, fairly small, but we do produce uh, kelp as well and other farmed seaweeds. But currently, really, those are all done independently. The, the IMTA approach, which I think, you know, um, conceptually sounds great, really hasn't gone anywhere, at least not to date. Uh, and I think because there are a lot of challenges to try to physically integrate this on a commercial scale. So to do it on a small scale, is not too difficult, but when you look at the size of a commercial salmon farm, uh, so that occupies a lot of space and also a fairly complex structure in terms of the cages themselves, all the mooring lines, all the requirements for for feeding, you know, uh, delivering feed to the cages and servicing the cages and harvesting fish. To integrate that with different systems for rearing mussels at the same site, and different systems for rearing kelp at the same site can be challenging. Um, there's also, so, you know, um, not that this can't be resolved, but there's also challenges just from the regulatory standpoint. So as it currently stands, it's, it's uh, you know, typically you are a salmon farmer, not a salmon, mussel, kelp farmer. Right. Or you're a mussel farmer, not a mussel, salmon, kelp farmer. So there are um, also regulatory issues that would need to be resolved around, uh, you know, uh, allowing permitting for multi-species aquaculture specific sites and ensuring that we can do we can adequately manage any kind of disease issues or or other issues related to site, uh, having multiple species at one site so i think not not insurmountable but but certainly at, at this point in time it really it has not gone it has not become something commercial in atlantic canada so something we briefly touched on but as you said can talk a bit more about is land-based recirculation systems and aquaculture so i'm wondering if you'd want to explain a little bit about the difference in sea cages etc yeah, so when you say traditional sea aquaculture, um, now that's really just for half of the life cycle for salmon. Salmon are species that begin their life in freshwater, they grow to adult size in the ocean, and then in nature would migrate back to freshwater to reproduce. And in in uh, aquaculture, that life cycle is roughly three years long. It, it would be longer in nature, but you know because of uh, being well fed and and optimizing temperature and so on, we can shorten that in aquaculture typically to three years. And, and that's still roughly one and a half years in freshwater and one and a half years in the ocean. But all of the most of the growth happens in the ocean. So when the fish go from freshwater to the ocean, they're still quite small. So most of the growth happens uh, in, in saltwater and in, in, in the ocean, typically in these net pens that are moored in coastal areas. And, and that's really that's a great environment for farming fish because we need to move lot, large volumes of water through the system. We need to bring in oxygen take out waste, you know, have, have clean water for the fish to swim in. And if you put the cages in the ocean, there's no cost to that, right? We don't pay money for currents or tides or anything like that. So there's a lot of appeal to putting salmon in net pens in the ocean. Uh, but there are some challenges with that as well. So one that sort of gets back to what we originally talked about, the use of sterile fish, is that when you put fish in cages in the ocean, they might escape. So then there's concerns about interbreeding with uh, wild fish. When we put fish in net pens in the ocean, they're exposed to any pathogens or parasites that might be in the ocean. So when they when they come out of the hatchery, they're typically pathogen and parasite free because we have very good control over the conditions of the water in the hatchery facility. So they're essentially pathogen and parasite free. Then we put them in the ocean. 
and they get exposed potentially to these pathogens. And now we have large numbers of fish in a small area. So once they get exposed, uh, it's possible for those pathogens or parasites to multiply within that population and clearly be harmful to that population and potentially also reinfect the wild. So now that, you know, they've been infected from the wild, but now they can reinfect the wild. And in the salmon aquaculture world, there's a lot of potential concerns. The big one though really is sea lice. Sea lice are a parasite of wild Atlantic salmon and therefore also farmed Atlantic salmon. So if we were to do the complete life cycle in the kinds of facilities that we use for hatchery production of freshwater fish, uh, then we could get around the escape problem. We could get around the sea lice or other pathogen problem. So just to back up, you know, the first half of the life cycle, then the, the freshwater hatchery phase go from egg to the stage when they're ready to go in the ocean, where we call them smolts. Those facilities are land-based systems and they typically recirculate the water. So there's a little bit of fresh water coming in. Mostly the water is recirculated to remove ammonia and uh, suspended organic waste and so on. Uh, so to recondition the water, reoxygenate the water. So there's very little water use for that. And because they are, it's, you know, essentially it could be a building anywhere really with a, you know, a cement slab, uh, fish really can't escape. I mean, if, if they did escape from a land-based facility, they would be escaping from a tank onto a concrete floor. So it's really sad for the fish, but there's no way for it to get out and interbreed with wild. And also it's very easy to prevent any kind of pathogens or parasites from getting into the facility. Very little makeup water coming in. That water can be sterilized before it goes in. So it works well for the hatchery phase. And that's why smolts, when they go into the cages, but between that and also they're, they're uh, vaccinated, really they're there's really um, no unhealthy fish going into the ocean. It's once they get in there that they pick up pathogens and parasites. So why not just do the whole life cycle in these kind of hatchery facilities, just make them really big. And people are doing that. Um, so they're investigating that approach. So land-based recirculating aquaculture systems. And um, it's similar to IMTA. It's, it, you know, intellectually sounds like a great idea. It sort of makes sense, you know, preventing escapes, uh, fish aren't getting exposed to pathogens or parasites. We, we can also capture any waste that the fish produce. It's, it's sort of like running a sewage treatment plant, except now we're getting for humans. So any waste that the fish are produced can be used uh, for fertilizer, for instance, or landfill or something like that. So why don't we do that? Really, the, the challenge is the cost of moving water. That's the big challenge. So why do we put salmon in net pens in the ocean? One of the main reasons is we pay nothing to move water and we need to move a lot of water. Uh, so in a freshwater hatchery, we need electricity to move water, but we're only producing smolts, so we're not producing big fish. So to really scale that up to produce, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of metric tons of fish, adult-sized salmon, can become prohibitively expensive. The cost of electricity is so high. There are some other issues around recirculating, land-based recirculating aquaculture systems, but that's really the big one is the cost. So to make that work, Really, you, you need to be located somewhere where you have very inexpensive electricity. So really, it, that's, that's the challenge is finding places where we can put these land-based facilities. But the, the aquaculture industry, the salmon aquaculture industry is already moving somewhat in that direction in the sense of they're allowing fish to grow to a larger size. They're producing larger smolts before they put them into pens to try to reduce the length of time that they have to spend in the ocean. So not completing the full life cycle on land, but completing more of it on land. Something that I've seen many proponents of aquaculture struggle with, especially living in coastal communities throughout Nova Scotia, is public buy-in. I'm wondering if this is something that you've worked on directly and what your thoughts about public acceptance in the context of aquaculture looks like, especially if you drive through communities where you see signs that say, say no to sea cages, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I've, I've thought about that a lot and I've dealt with it uh, a fair bit. Uh, as well. Uh, here in Atlantic Canada, I've, I um, did my PhD in, at uh, UBC in Vancouver, I spent a lot of time on the West Coast. Uh, so I've seen that kind of sentiment here in Atlantic Canada. I've seen it in British Columbia, where it's a, actually, you know, to be honest, a much bigger issue than it is here in Atlantic Canada. Uh, I've been in South America and Chile and Argentina, and I've seen the same sentiment there. So Atlantic Canada, um, West Coast Canada, South America, we have um, thriving salmon farming industries in coastal areas where they provide a lot of local employment. A lot of people are happy with it. 
and we also have very vocal groups opposed to salmon farming uh, in the same area. So, um, you know, we sort of need to step back and think about why are we farming salmon in the first place, and and how does it, you know, what what are what are the pros and cons of doing this? So, you know, why are we farming Atlantic salmon? Really, here in Atlantic Canada, um, simply put, is because we have consumed Atlantic salmon in Atlantic Canada for hundreds of years from the wild, and those wild fisheries have collapsed. So we have really no source of wild Atlantic salmon anymore in Atlantic Canada. So if you want to buy Atlantic salmon to eat in Atlantic Canada, you have no choice. You have to eat Atlantic, farmed Atlantic salmon. And it's a similar story pretty much anywhere in the native range of Atlantic salmon. So this is true for you know Norway and Scotland and Iceland and so on. The, the wild populations, depends a little bit where you are, but across the board, numbers are, are very low, if not endangered, like they are here in the, in the Bay of Fundy. So I guess the first question is, um, do you want to eat Atlantic salmon? And if the, if the answer to that is yes, well, then by default, you're going to have to eat farmed. But, you know, we don't have to eat Atlantic salmon. Right. And we could even step back from there and say, we don't have to eat meat. Right. So a lot of us, uh, so we all have a, this choice. Uh, a lot of us choose to eat meat, uh, but we don't have to, you know, uh, we could, and I don't know about you personally, but, you know, just, I could say you just as a general person, you could omnivore, you could eat meat and plants, you could be a vegetarian. So maybe still eat eggs and dairy and so on, or you could be vegan and, and absolutely none of that. Well, if you're vegan or a vegetarian, then you've sort of made a conscious choice not to eat meat. And, 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 I, and I respect that. And really, that is actually a very good approach environmentally. A lot of environmental problems we have come from farming animals. So if so, when I meet people who are anti-salmon farming, and, and I've met a lot of them, typically the first thing I ask them is, are you a vegetarian? And if the answer is yes, then, you know, I'll still talk to them about the pros and cons of salmon farming. But, you know, basically um, I say to them, okay, you know, really, you've made a good choice and I'm not going to try to change your mind about eating salmon. I mean, we can still talk about the pros and cons of salmon farming, but I'm, I'm not going to argue with you about whether we should eat salmon or not, because you've already made a decision not to for whatever reason. So if people, however, if I meet people who are anti-salmon farming and I say, well, are you vegetarian? And they say, no, I say, okay, well, do you eat, you know, beef, pork, chicken, and so on? And they say, yes. Well, then I think really they're being somewhat hypocritical. So then those people I try to educate to explain to them that really there is no type of farming that does not have environmental impacts. If you're a vegan, you're still eating plants that have been grown in ways that have environmental impacts. You know, if you're vegan and you only buy organic food, farming will still have environmental impacts. Uh, farming animals typically has more environmental impacts than farming plants. People that eat farmed animals, I will talk to them and try to explain to them, to them how, if they don't know what the farming industry really is like for animals, you know, how does the beef farming industry work? Pig farming, chicken farming, salmon farming. And in most, in most metrics that we use for assessing environmental impacts of agriculture, uh, salmon farming is typically far better in the sense of having far less environmental impacts than beef or pork or chicken. Now, you can't overgeneralize, you know, um, some beef farming is more harmful than other types of beef farming, same for pork, same for chicken, same for salmon. But in general, farming salmon is less environmental harm than farming those more, those terrestrial types. So really, you know, people who are opposed to salmon farming, I think first need to understand how does salmon farming work? You know, what really are the environmental impacts? And do we want to have fish to eat and is farming the right way to do it. So for Atlantic salmon, you have no choice. For other species, we still have choices. But if we have choices, so then we need to think about, does it make sense to um, hunt and capture wild fish or to farm them? What has more environmental impacts? So going back to invasive species control and integrated pest management, it seems like genetic options for mitigation are a proactive approach. I'm wondering if you have any comments on the smallmouth bass problem in New Brunswick and the steps that have been taken to manage it so far. And which options do you think are the most feasible in reactive scenarios, like the one that we're facing with that right now? 
Yeah. So again, um, not not my own field of research, but I'm very much. I mean, you can't listen to the news and not hear stories about uh, smallmouth bass here in, in New Brunswick and Atlantic Canada. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it's clearly not a native species. Uh, it is an introduced species, but it has done incredibly well. You know, it's it's clearly established. We will never. You know, I can't imagine how we will ever get rid of smallmouth bass. Maybe in small pockets, but you know, we'll never get rid of uh, smallmouth bass. Uh, here in Atlantic Canada. So very, very prolific breeder, um, clearly does well in our environments here. Very popular sport fish. People love fishing for smallmouth bass, you know, not necessarily um, for eating them, but just as a recreational fishery. But, you know, whenever you have an invasive species, you're, you're going to see in- impacts on native species. And we've certainly seen that here in terms of them displacing other species uh, like brook trout. Uh, is an example, and and preying on juveniles of uh, native species like brook trout and Atlantic salmon. So, uh, so what do you do? And it's like so many things. You know, there's a, there's a trade off between um, what what do people want and what is best for the environment. If, if if we could wind back the clock and somehow prevent anyone from ever having brought bass in here, that would be great. But we can't do that. Um, we can we can try very hard to eliminate them from local areas, but it doesn't take much for them to, and even if that's successful, it doesn't take much for them to get reintroduced, um, whether it's intentional or, or um, accidental. So uh, it's a real challenge for smallmouth bass. You know, I think we basically need to be resolved to the fact that it'll always be here and, and try to, to manage where possible if if we can, you know, what's, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of what's been going on and uh, trying to limit them from spreading in the Miramichi. I think in the St. John River system, which is a big part of New Brunswick, it's a lost cause. In the Miramichi system, which is another big chunk of New Brunswick, it's still something that maybe could be achieved to prevent them from spreading through the Miramichi system. So, you know, I, I honestly, I think we should be doing that, but we need to look at how, how can we do that without causing too much harm. And it, and it, to be honest, like a lot of this stuff, including the salmon farming stuff, it becomes very much a political issue more so than a biological issue. I've definitely seen that a lot with the smallmouth projects, especially the proposed Rotenone project. It was a big yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, and and for sure, Rotenone will kill smallmouth bass, but it's going to kill more than smallmouth Everything bass. else, too. <laughs> So I've read a few of your papers on blood chemistry regarding different fishes, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about whether or not there's a crossover between your work with thermal stress and sort of the climate change impacts that you mentioned a few questions ago. Yeah, and and, uh, sort of at at the core of my research program has been what we talked about at the beginning, um, sterility in fish and single-sex populations in fish. But there's a lot of other things that have sort of been weaving in and out of my research career. And, And this is another one. So on the on the triploidy side, as I mentioned earlier, we've, we've been interested in um, looking at their temperature tolerances and oxygen, low oxygen tolerances, and you know, thinking this is an issue for triploids that they're less able to tolerate high temperature and low oxygen than normal diploid fish. Well, that that question of high temperature tolerance and low oxygen tolerance is much bigger than just triploid fish. So I have been working on on other projects that don't involve triploids at all, uh, looking at thermal tolerance in fish. So for instance, the last few years, I've been collaborating with uh, a researcher at the Huntsman Marine Science Center here in St. Andrews, who works with um, one of the big salmon farming companies, uh, uh, Moe Canada East. Um, so working with their breeding program and, and trying to develop sort of the best breeding population for aquaculture fish that grow well, that have good appearance, that are disease resistant. So we're interested in knowing whether we can integrate high temperature tolerance into that breeding program. So so with my background in assessing temperature tolerance and hypoxia tolerance in fish, we've now, so I'm now collaborating with them to look at um, temperature tolerance and hypoxia tolerance in a commercial strain of Atlantic salmon. So just do we see uh, variability among families. Is this a heritable trait? So many traits are heritable. You know, for us, it could be eye color and hair color and so on. But in aquaculture, also important things like disease resistance and growth rate. So is high temperature tolerance a heritable trait in Atlantic salmon? 
and it turns out it is. We, we've we've shown this. So by having access to a to a commercial breeding program, we've been able to show that tolerance to high temperatures is a heritable trait. Now we're not talking huge improvements. You know, fish that can survive you know hot tub temperatures or something like that. But we are seeing variability. You know, with within a population where temperature tolerant individuals or families have a temperature tolerance that's maybe a degree a degree and a half higher than low tolerant. And in, in the scale of how we're seeing climate change affecting temperatures, that's actually a lot. You know, one degree Celsius in, in marine and in, in ocean systems is a lot. So it's kind of encouraging to see that um, we may be able to uh, see the salmon aquaculture industry sort of adapting to climate change using breeding approaches. And that's really how adaptation works in nature, right? Natural selection is through breeding, except nature decides who survives, you know, who breeds. And in this case, we decide who breeds, but it's based on doing temperature challenges in the lab, taking that information and incorporating it into a breeding program. I'm also interested in your opinions on the limitations of aquaculture. I'm familiar with bivalve and shellfish aquaculture, sort of like we chatted about earlier, flatfish, salmonid, but there have been interesting debates about quantifying animal sentience and intelligence and whether something like octopus aquaculture should exist. And I'm really interested in what you think about this. Yeah. So, and actually I'm just um, starting this year, I'm collaborating on a project uh, on a mussel aquaculture project, which for me is kind of new. I, you know, I'm collaborating with people that do a lot of mussel aquaculture. But my background is entirely fish, so I'm kind of excited to work on mussels. And, and just as an aside, it's actually working on triploid mussels. But but mussel aquaculture, so bivalves like mussels and oysters and scallops um, are interesting animals because unlike salmon and other fish that we farm, we don't have to feed them pellets like we feed fish. And, and if you think of, you know, if you have a pet dog or a pet cat, you know, you buy a bag of pellets. And you feed them, that's the dog food, the cat food. That's basically what fish food is. Uh, so there's a lot that goes into those pellets for fish. They have to have a high, and it's the same for your dog or your cat. You know, they have to have a high energy content, a lot of protein, a lot of fat. Where does that come from? You know, uh, a lot of that actually comes from wild animals, like wild fish that are caught and turned into protein powder and fish oil, and then manufactured into pellets that we feed salmon. So that's a, that's a very um, energetically demanding process. Uh, and it really only works for high value fish like salmon to, to really take fish and turn them into pellets to feed to fish. Only makes sense if your product has high value. And that's really the beauty or one of the beauties of farming bivalves is you don't have to do that. They are feeding on natural foods, phytoplankton principally, so unicellular algae that are floating in the water column. So we, we typically call fish in aquaculture, we call them a fed species, we're feeding them. And bivalves, we call uh, extractive species, they're extracting food from their environment. So uh, that has a lot of appeal environmentally to do that approach to, to, farm, uh, to farm bivalves. So, uh, so, right, so that's why I got into bivalves as well, because so now bivalves, so by which I mean things like mussels and oysters, you know, how do you, how do you, define sentience is, um, is a tough question, right? Uh, you know, we often, we think about things like, uh, is an animal self-aware? Like, do you know that you are you and that I am me? Do I know that I am me and I'm not you? And so I am a, an individual. Like if I look at a mirror, do I actually recognize that image in a mirror as me as opposed to somebody else? And, and so, so humans clearly can do that. Primates can do that, but other animals can do that as well. Uh, so, uh, so that's sort of one test, uh, but there are other tests of self-awareness. And, and then there's also questions like maybe really just, um, you know, do we know, does an individual know, is it a, is it a unique individual or not? We, we never really can know, but then there's more basic questions to, uh, to think about, for instance, in farming is e even if we say these animals uh, are less sentient than us, that doesn't mean that maybe they don't get stressed or feel pain or suffer, you know, in the way that we farm them. And it's hard to know, you know, I think if you, again, if you have a dog or a cat and it's hurt, you know, it breaks a leg or something and, and you look at the way that animal reacts, it's, it's impossible to put yourself in the mind of a dog or a cat, but it's not too hard to imagine, okay, that animal is suffering from a broken leg, but it gets hard when you get down to say the world of fish. 
know, fish certainly react. If, if you, uh, in, our, in our research in the lab, for instance, um, we're often uh, interested in measuring things in the blood. And, and you know, if you've ever had to give a, you know, have blood drawn at the hospital or something like that, you know, it hurts when you put a needle, a nurse puts a needle in your arm. But we, when we're taking blood samples from fish, we have to anesthetize them because we know if we stick a needle in a fish, it's going to you know, flick its tail or something like that. So it, so it definitely feels that. It reacts the same way you and I would react. But it's, it's harder to know than now, is this animal suffering? It's clearly react. So now we go down to invertebrates like um, mussels and oysters. So now they don't have a, unlike vertebrate animals, including fish that have a, a very well-developed discrete brain, central nervous system, and a nervous system that spreads throughout the body. Muscles and oysters don't have that. So they have a nervous system, but they don't have a well-developed brain like we do. So it's, you know, it's easier to imagine or maybe just reassure yourself that, you know, an oyster or a mussel or something like that doesn't feel pain. I mean, really, there's no way of knowing. And certainly it'll react if, if you, you know, if you when a muscle is feeding, its, it's shell is open and there's living tissue coming out. And if you stick a needle in that, it's going to close its shell. So again, it's, it's reacting to that. But is it feeling pain? Can you say an animal that doesn't have a brain, can you say that it's actually feeling pain? Or is it just reacting to that stimulus? That's something that we all struggle with, those of us that work with animals. Whether we use them in research, whether we farm them, you know, even whether you're just a, an angler catching a smallmouth bass on a hook and letting it go. And and seeing it swim away, you know, it looks like a healthy animal when it swims away. Did it feel pain and stress during that time that you caught it? So in, in my mind, I feel more comfortable doing this kind of stuff, for instance, with mussels and oysters. And that's just my perception of a different level of sentience. So now back to your question of octopus. That's So that's something that's being talked about a lot right now, because there's now one company that is proposing to be the world's first company to farm octopus. Now, octopus have a very well-developed nervous system. They're, they're very aware of their environment. They're very intelligent animals. They're exceptionally good at solving problems. They're very aware of their environment. You know, they're, we often look at non-primate animals in terms of their ability to solve problems. We think of some birds are really good. You know, crows and ravens are, are exceptionally good at solving problems. Well, so are octopus. You know, I don't know how you would do an IQ test to compare an octopus with a crow but they would compare very well. So um, I, you know, personally, I think octopus are super cool animals, super interesting animals. I would, I personally, um, where we, we do not at this time have an octopus aquaculture industry, I'm kind of hesitant to, to start that. Um, it's, it's, you know, I think it would be difficult for me to justify that in comparison to say farming beef cattle or pigs or whatever. I don't know really which, animal is better or worse suited as a species for farming. But we have a history of farming those other animals and we don't have a history of farming octopus. And, and that's like the smallmouth bass thing, you know. Sure, if, if we could wind back the clock and never introduce smallmouth bass to Atlantic Canada, that's great, let's not introduce them, but it's done. And so that's my thinking with um, a lot of animals that we already farm, but we don't farm octopus. And um, I'm sure you could make money at it, but do we need to farm octopus? You know, I don't think so. So now we get to hear your final five, and this is a group of five last questions that each guest who joins us on the fisheries podcast get asked. So the first question is, what is your favorite fish? <laughs> so as a, so I, I'm not a vegetarian, so <laughs> do you mean to eat or just as a, as a living animal? Either or. So uh, as a living animal, I've, so the last 30 years, um, my research, my, my experimental animal here has been uh, brook trout. So I've learned a lot about the biology of brook trout. Um, so I sort of understand their biology, but they really, I think are beautiful fish. So I would have to say as a, just as a living animal, uh, I'd say brook trout. I've learned a lot about the physiology of brook trout from you. <laughs> yeah, good. And hopefully you remember some of it. Yeah. Too. <laughs> yeah, as as a fish to eat, I would say, um, and I'll have to give a bit of a background to this, but I would say uh, Atlantic cod, but it has to be fresh. And uh, so I grew up in Montreal, you know, big city, far from the ocean. So for me as a kid, cod was something that, that came in little breaded rectangles in a box, right, that you put in an oven. And it, it really tastes like doesn't taste like anything. 
then I went, then I moved to Newfoundland. I lived in Newfoundland for two and a half years, did my master's degree there. And, and this was um, in the early 1980s when there was still uh, a lot of cod, you know, uh, cod fishery unfortunately collapsed. And back then you could literally catch cod on a you know, hook and line from shore. Uh, cod would, it was very seasonal, but, but cod would come inshore to feed on a smaller fish called capelin that, that spawn on the beaches. So when, when capelin come in to spawn, the cod, actually everything, cod, whales, seabirds, would all follow them in, in shore. So you could actually, you know, just cast a line into the ocean and catch a cod and then eat it like an hour later. And for me, there is nothing like a fresh cod. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? Wow. Hard hitting questions. Yeah, boy. Uh, yeah, I would, yeah, I, you know, that's a tough one. You know, the, so uh, my career as a, as a professor, it's my two principal roles are, are teaching and research. And, and I really enjoy the teaching, but, but in terms of what's really fun for me is, uh, is the research side of things. And, and most of my research is done, when I, when I call it my research, really, it's done by graduate students uh, in my lab. So a lot, of, a lot of research, we sort of, you know, the way science works, you, you have an idea and then you test it. So you have an hypothesis and you make predictions. And, and we're often very conservative as scientists. So we're kind, of, we're kind of lazy and we come up with ideas that we're pretty sure are going to work, you know. Uh, so it's rare that you have these kind of uh, eureka moments and you get something that's completely unexpected. And um, so this whole line of research that I've done on um, recently on temperature tolerance and low oxygen tolerance in fish came from something that was completely uh, unexpected. Uh, actually goes back to a graduate student 20 years ago now who looked at the metabolic rate of diploid and triploid fish at different temperatures and got really nice data to show that triploids have a lower optimum temperature for metabolism than diploids. And um, it's not really something that we were expecting to see. So it was sort of one of those eureka moments that in hindsight, a lot of these eureka moments, you know, when you think about it, they kind of make sense. You just didn't think it through. And, and in hindsight, that one made sense. But, I, you know, I think that which, which was a nice publication. So, and, and so to put a plug, um, that was a graduate student named Michelle Atkins, did her master's with me. Actually did her undergraduate degree here and then did her master's with me. This was a while ago. And if you weren't a fish physiologist and aquaculture expert, what would your dream job be? Uh, well, it would still be biology. Um, I really, I, so as a, as a kid, uh, I spent a lot of time outdoors, always interested in animals, always interested in fish and birds. And actually, and I still am interested a lot in birds, just sort of as, as a hobby, you know, what bird is that that I hear? I like bird watching and that kind of stuff. So um, I think um, when I when I went, when I think about going to university, I knew I wanted to do biology. I was uh, kind of debating, do I want to sort of focus on fish or on birds? And even as an undergraduate student, I really hadn't made up my mind. I just, I knew I wanted to do something related to biology. And then as in my last year as an undergraduate student, I just, I got really excited and interested in aquaculture and I went into the fish side. So I think uh, if I weren't doing that, you know, maybe I would be an ornithologist and, and maybe, you know, work on doing something more related to say conservation or bird ecology or something like that. If money and funding were not an issue, what is a project that you would love to work on? So, um... Uh, I've a, a lot of my thinking, a lot of my research, but also a lot of my thinking has been about um, the importance of aquaculture and and making it work. You know, um, not necessarily salmon farming, but just uh, aquaculture in general, I think is really important. We need to, I don't need to tell you this, but, you know, we, we've got a growing human population. We have limited resources. We need more food. We need good quality food. And um in terms of aquatic resources, we've really, most of our aquatic resources have been fished unsustainably or at the maximum level. So we, we, we really can't harvest more food from the ocean by fishing it. So I think fundamentally we need to do more aquaculture. Now, salmon farming, which is where a lot of my research has been based, that's not going to feed, you know, another billion or two billion people. But I think aquaculture can so not necessarily salmon, but maybe other species that are more suitable for that. So if, you know, if I had limitless money, I, I would put that into figuring out how can we best farm uh, aquatic animals in a really big way that is environmentally sustainable, but can really feed large numbers of people. 
And, and that's, um, it's, I think that's a solvable problem, uh, but it takes a lot of research. And it's just like uh, any big problem, you know, if, if you really put a lot, and, and, you know, COVID is the perfect example. If you, if you put a lot of smart people and a lot of money on a problem, you can solve it. And I'm just, I'm still amazed how quickly we were able to roll out vaccines for COVID. It just, it blows my mind how fast that happened. And it's because, this isn't me, but it's because a lot of very smart people were given a lot of money and they figured out how to do it. And finally, if there's one point or principle that you would like listeners to take away from hearing you speak today, what would that be? Yeah, I think uh, understanding uh, understanding science, I think is, um, I put a lot of effort into that, or at least trying to do that. And um and, and COVID is a good example. So, you know, um, I'm not a virologist. I, I don't work on vaccines, but I do understand to some extent, you know, better maybe than my next door neighbor, the science behind mRNA vaccines. And, um, you know, I just, I did not hesitate personally to get vaccinated. It just, for me, it was a no brainer. And um, I mean, I wouldn't get vaccinated to something I didn't do a bit of research about, or I wouldn't be vaccinated with something I didn't do a bit of research first. Um, but I think it's, because I understood the science. And I think a lot of concerns that the public has about vaccination, about salmon aquaculture, you know, about the question of is climate change real or if it is real, is it because of human activity? And those sorts of questions to me are, they are fair questions for people who don't understand the science. And that's not a, that's not a criticism, right? We, we can't all be scientists. We can't all get trained as scientists, but I think um, it's a, it's very very important for people who are trained as scientists to take advantage of our knowledge to explain to people, you know, not to say you need to go to school, you know, to use our experience and our education to help non-scientists understand the science. So I think that's the most important thing people could maybe take home from this discussion. It would be a take home from this discussion that we've had is to maybe. You know, understand the relevance of what we're doing and then try to understand the science to make informed decisions about is, it, is this a good thing or not. Dr. Benfai, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure to learn more about your work and various contributions to aquaculture research and industry. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or old-fashioned email through feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream us from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or thefisheriespodcast.com. Don't forget that you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some of our Fisheries Podcast merch available on Teespring. My name is Reed Sutherland. Thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast today. And remember, always do your best to ask questions and understand the science.